From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. TNT Radio. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Arrett on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back for the second segment of this edition of Connecting the Dots. With me today is a, a very, very impressive journalist, historian, analyst, Nancy Spanis, who I've been following for many, many years. Nancy is the president of American System Now and the author of Hamilton versus Wall Street, an incredible book. Uh, highly recommend that everybody pick up Hamilton versus Wall Street and her more recent book. That's it. If you're watching this uh, and not just listening, Hamilton versus Wall Street has been shown on the screen um, by Nancy. Now, Nancy has recently produced a new book, um, extremely strategic at this moment, called Defeating Slavery, Hamilton's American System Showed the Way. I have been very, I I think that it is undervalued, the importance of this fight. There there is so much effort right now, and, and that's been pushed, especially over the last few years, to promote almost as if certain forces wish to see a civil war in America break out yet again. Um, but one that actually does the job that the Civil War uh, failed to do back in the 1860s. That also, just like this one, has been manipulated by foreign agencies, banking operations in London, even within the American deep state. The fifth columnists within Wall Street were back then, just like today, working to undermine and destroy America from within. And part of this involves convincing as many Americans as possible that America is not a legitimate country to begin with and that the world would be a better place without it since America is, after all, as we know, a nation founded on hypocrisy, evil, white colonialism and slavery in its core essence. And that's all it is. So it'd be better that this mistake of history be just erased now. And if a civil war is what it takes, then so be it, says the George Soros is pushing money into Black Lives Matter and other things um, and getting a lot of good people to fall into this uh, this the becoming becoming instruments of a will that actually wants to, to ultimately destroy them too. So your book is very, very useful. But Nancy, what do people need to know? And and what what did you see as the value of your book? And what are you bringing to the, to the discussion right now that helps situate uh, the discussion in something more sane? Well, the book really became a necessity, in my view, uh, as a result of a few things going on. Um, One of those things was the 1619 Project, which basically rewrote the founding and essence of the United States. I mean, she can make all the tiny corrections she wants, right? But the point of it is that Slavery's in America's DNA. And my lead sentence in the preface is, slavery is not in America's DNA. There was always a fight against slavery. And in fact, we had the strongest argument and movement against slavery at that time in the, in the 18th century of any country in the world. So that was number one. And, you know, I didn't, I followed what the other historians were saying Particularly interesting is this fellow Gordon Wood, who said, who made that argument about the uh, anti-slavery movement in the United States. The second thing that happened was George Floyd, right, which Mm. brought the entire racial question to the fore 
And, you know, for legitimate reasons in many respects, because there is a systemic problem in much part of the United States. Uh, but the way things polarized on that was to eliminate the reality of what the fight has always been in this country. And the third thing was a really tendentious paper, which got totally uncritical support from the Smithsonian, the New York Times, and probably all over the world, uh, to say that Hamilton was an enslaver, right? Mm. And therefore, uh, there was no, not a, there was no good guy. There was no pushback against this entire system. So all of that sort of came together, and I started studying what was actually the anti-slavery movement was like in the United States. And you know, just as much as slavery itself tends tended to be written out of the history of, of idealized histories of the United States, the anti-slavery movement has also been written out uh, in many respects. They say it started in 1830s. I mean, that's ridiculous. It, I mean, if you actually know what's going on. And then the, the actual last thing that really brings it all together in a way is the upcoming uh, 250th anniversary of the founding of the United States with the Declaration of Independence. There is a lot of angst, one might say, uh, among many, many good people, as you indicate with indicated, uh, of, you know, well, what was the truth? I mean, what yeah. was, you know, where did this come from? Uh, where, you know, where did the attack come from? Where did the reality come from? I didn't know any of this stuff. You know, I didn't know what was going on on e on any side, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that question of identity of the United States, I think really, if you wanted to say one thing that makes it really important, uh, I think that's it. And I really encourage, I mean, I don't know how many American listeners you have versus Canadian listeners versus, you know, Australian global listeners. Uh, but uh, I would really like to encourage people to to buy this book on Amazon. I mean, it's in it's yeah. in ebook, it's in uh, paperback. Um, I don't go into hardcover. Um, maybe someday, but uh, it's it's an eye opener a big mm. eye opener in terms of what and it goes against almost everything that you will have heard in the recent period um, so let me let me ask you let me ask you this um 1618 project asserts that the sl the first slaves were brought into north america in 1618 uh eight millions i think eight million or something before the american revolution uh were brought in from africa how is this not the fault of the americans how did slavery, how is slavery not embedded in the DNA of America, if that's true? Well, it's number one, it's not true. <laughs> there was slavery here prior to that time. Um, but the other, uh, in fact, I think the, no, no, the Dutch were a little bit later, a little bit later. But, um, but the fact is the American people, the settlers here, who were British <laughs> uh, did not ask 
the for slaves to be sent from Africa. It was a um, a pirate operation by a British ship to seize a slave ship of the Portuguese and bring it here. Um, and mm. in fact, those people who came who came were mostly treated as indentured servants at the time. Um, the and people could buy their and slavery was not codified in Virginia until more than 50 years, about 50 years later. Um, hmm. So it, you could say it was sort of an accident of history, but um, there was slavery globally, you know, everywhere. I mean, I loved the uh, one of the headlines of the Wall Street Journal at the time of the 1619 project where they said, America invented slavery, right? You know, because mm -hmm. the way it was being dealt with, you would think that that was the case. But slavery had already been uh, endemic in, in uh, starting in the 15th century um, in many parts of, uh, you know, from the Portuguese and the Spanish. There were some tribes in America who had uh, Indian tribes who or and Native American tribes, or however you want to call it, you know, who also practiced slavery. People said, well, that wasn't hereditary. Well, it may generally not have been hereditary, but, and it was generally done as war, uh, you know, as a result Booty of the war. Or, yeah, right. But many, these people were treated in the various ways they could be, they could have been treated as a uh, adopted, they could have been worked, you know, doing a functioning job, or they could have been uh, ritually sacrificed, right? So right. if you were one of the ones who were ritually sacrificed, the fact that it wasn't hereditary slavery wouldn't really seem so great. You'd rather wait and have a child. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure violence only came to North America because of European colonists. I, I'm pretty sure violence didn't exist in North oh, America. Yeah, that's right. That's... <laughs> Before your before yeah. Europeans entered uh, it, the it's scene, it's really absolutely. Uh, <laughs> it's just so ahistorical. It's ignorance, yeah. right? And then on top of ignorance, you know, there's a uh, an exploitation of that in of that ignorance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which and and the British always played both sides of this matter. I mean, they played at a certain point, they began to, in the particularly early 19th century, they began to play the uh, anti, you know, that they were the big anti-slavery center, uh, mm. some of them. And the on the other side, they were sending agents all over the South to encourage the expansion of slavery into Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, you know, for their cotton trade, uh, which they were the primary, 85% uh, of the cotton that was produced in the South went to Liverpool, Leeds, and, you know, uh, British ports. So they were always both sides. And as you indicated before, you know, they weren't reconciled to the existence of independence of the United States really until uh, after the Civil War. 
and then they had to ch- change tactic <laughs> in, in another way. Now, I, I love the fact that you've you've identified this because a lot of people have have made the mistake of oversimplifying this history, thinking it was all about Americans who are against slavery and Americans who are for slavery and this oversimplification, which is ra- almost apolitical. When you look at the actual role of in, the international uh, British intelligence influence, internet, like all across the world, um, you realize it's so much more complex and you had many good abolitionists, but you also had very, very dishonest uh, British agents acting like abolitionists. Um, maybe in the next three minutes, I don't know, before we go to a break, could you say a little bit something about how some of the abolitionists were actually not honest? What did they want if they didn't want to just stop slavery? Well, uh, at the later point, they wanted to, and I think probably throughout, they wanted to split up the country. They didn't want to have a continental United States because that represented the potential to become a superpower threat to Great Britain. Um, So, uh, and it really showed itself at certain points on the economic side with people who tried to push uh, against slavery, but at the same time uh, were absolutely virulent in favor of the British economic system. So, and that's one of my major points that you can't have a moral outlook towards slavery and an immoral economics. And the moral economics that we had maybe not the best in the world, but the one that was there was Alexander Hamilton's. Well, with that, let us take a quick little break uh, before we vector back into continuing and pulling on this thread on TNT Radio, Connecting the Dots. You should hear what Ross Cameron is talking about. I see there's a new trend taking place, sweeping uh, the internet of what they're calling sort of technology naked walks, where you go for a walk without your iPhone, without uh, a headset, and just alone with your thoughts. Apparently some people are finding it quite emotionally taxing, but subsequently liberating. Uh, Certainly I find if I get into a motor vehicle with a teenager, it's a matter of seconds uh, before there is a request for uh, usually the latest uh, Taylor Swift song or some other form of electronic stimulus. We are generation apparently trained uh, for a very short concentration span and a desperate need for um, digital company. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. DOJ have approved a no-knock breach. We want the subject to be on display, doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? Government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I going to get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at 
and then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. Today's News Talk Radio. Now we're talking. Turn it up now. TNT. Welcome back for the second segment of our second hour with Nancy Spanis. For many years, I had been of the belief that Alexander Hamilton, the first Treasury Secretary of the United States, was a Rothschild stooge who brought in private central banking and led the way to the Federal Reserve as part of the destruction of America by a banker's dictatorship from within. I believe this, and I'd, I'd read a lot of material promoting this, this version of our history. And I believe it was only at a certain point about probably 13 years ago that I, I had the good fortune of picking up a, a book that you had written in the 70s called The Political Economy of the American Revolution, featuring a lot of original source material of people who actually made history year, sent, up to centuries in some cases before the American Revolution um, and then afterwards. <clears throat> And uh, and I realized that a whole spectrum of reality was being ignored by the narrative that I had taken on, which painted Hamilton as this supervillain in a very simplistic way, almost. Um, now, you have pointed out in your in your many works, especially Hamilton versus Wall Street, but you're also your current book, that anybody who actually wants to create not only political economic sovereignty away from world government controls, but also a, is serious about ending the addiction to cheap labor, slave labor, sweatshops, needs to think about the science of physical economy, think about the science of Hamiltonian economics that were understood by Hamilton and many of the leading founding fathers who were very serious about abolishing slavery, both during that time of the 18th century, but all the way through the uh, the, the people around Lincoln. So what does that have to do? What what does Hamilton's way of thinking about economics and abolishing slavery have anything to do with each other? Well, it really goes to the question of what creates wealth in a society. Um, and the contention these days is that wealth is created by, was created, the wealth that brought the United States to the preeminent position globally was created by slave labor. Uh, but the fact is that that kind of activity does not, but I contend that it was, we became great despite the fact that we had slave labor because real wealth is created by what, as Hamilton said in one of his descriptions of what were the advantages of manufacturing in the report on manufacturers, which is a major feature of the first book, uh, Hamilton versus Wall Street. That's where you have to go if you really want to get the nub of what he had to say. He said that it's the creative powers of the human mind that are developed by manufacturers and that that, which leads to techno technological progress, is what increases the productivity of labor. Very funny, one time I was running for office and giving a speech 
talked about the productive powers of labor as discussed by Alexander Hamilton. You're a Marxist, you're a Marxist, right? You know, it didn't come from Marx. <laughs> it came from uh, the good old American system. So, um, and, you know, Marx picked up some things from the American system, despite his protestations to the contrary. Um, mm. So the fact is, I think that Hamilton's anti-slavery economics really goes to that core. Uh, he didn't see wealth being dependent upon what our raw materials were, you know, how much species we had, right? Uh, he believed in credit for, which is where the banking comes in. Do you understand credit? If you understand credit, you know you have to invest. You have to think in the future. You have to think. Isn't, of what isn't credit just credit card debt? Every time I get uh, my monthly credit, <laughs> my what I owe Visa isn't what that. What did credit? you buy with that credit card? That's the question. That's <laughs> your Christmas you, pay, you have to pay your rent with the credit card, or mm. <laughs> would you, you know, what did you spend your money on? Right. Uh, what did you have to advance in order to uh, have a more productive future? And that's the way he was thinking. He was thinking credit is, in a way, a belief in the future, investing, putting your resources into that. How do you improve that productivity for the future? It's the development of the mind. And it, there's no, and that means it has to be anti-slavery. You can't. Slavery is precisely the opposite of what Hamilton lays out in that, where the intention and reality was a constant reduction of the ability of the of the enslaved people to get access to thought, you know, to access to books, be able to read, be able to uh, even listen to someone else read to them or anything of that sort. So. I think that's where the core comes. And I do spend a certain amount of time in this book addressing that. Addressing it is because there are a few other scholars who talk about it. Um, and it it really presents that the chapter of the book is that slavery was the cancer of the American political economy, not the source of wealth. Um, and Actually, that's an idea that that's an actual quote from a uh, debate that happened in the Virginia House of Delegates on mm -hmm. the slavery issue in 1831. But it is was also referenced by Lincoln, you know, when he was talking about how to get rid of slavery, not directly in that way, but he was talking about, you know, what you do about cutting out the cancer in order to have a healthy life. And he referred to it in that, you know, that, that you have to be very careful, right? About yeah. how you do that in order to preserve the nation. Well, yeah. And, and, and uh, on the, on the issue of, uh, of the destruction of the creative powers that slavery causes, uh, Frederick Douglass in his autobiography, who was a great ally of Abraham Lincoln, um, advised him at, at some key strategic moments in history, wrote that both the, the evil of slavery is that both the slave master who becomes addicted to the system of, of uh, influence that comes with owning um, 
hundreds of slaves, is himself enslaved and degenerated, debased to that very system that he was born into, as well as obviously the slave, and that both the slave and slave master are in a form slaves, deprived of their natural um, creative ability. So that's an interesting point that you just made, that you can overcome that by getting out of that system that relies on human brute labor and instead have have um, industry manufacturing replace uh, the the need to use slavery or slaves. But on the issue of these sacred cows, we we're talking about Hamilton. He's a bad guy. Most a, a lot of people listening to the show have probably only heard the one bad side. Lincoln also right. has gotten a pretty bad rap too. Lincoln has we've been told he was the tyrant dictator. Uh, abusing people's rights to have property. And and he didn't even care about slavery. He said he would allow slavery if it meant saving the union. I We've all heard these quotes. Um, what do you, what do you respond to that? That he didn't care about abolishing slavery if it meant saving the union. He would, he, how, how do you situate what he said there in, in some bit, bigger well, context? I, I can, I can situate it particularly because yeah. in time, it's very interesting. Uh, I learned this in preparing a class on Lincoln that um, he he wrote that in a letter to Horace Greeley in August of 1862. Um, and ironically, perhaps in July of 1862, approximately a month earlier, he had already determined to carry out the Emancipation Proclamation. So, it was his, he had made a decision that he, that the only way to save the Constitution was to end slavery. Mm. Uh, that, in fact, if you see, he was a lawyer, right? And he had studied the constitutional deliberations extremely carefully. And he was very convinced that the Constitution. It didn't declare the right to slaves throughout the country, but in the states where it was at the time of the founding, you couldn't enter, you could not prevent it, um, but you could restrict it and it would die. I mean, because he was convinced, and I think my book elaborates, makes this clear that, uh, and with a lot more intelligence, that it was on its it was going to die right if you didn't if it didn't expand so you know that was his view and but then so the fight ended up being on the expansion which mm. as we know um and uh you know and he tried to maintain that position in his inaugural address you know and in the immediate period he kept offering different plans to gradually eliminate slavery in the uh in the middle states which had slavery but were still with within the union uh and it wasn't working and he became convinced finally that in order to save the union he had to begin to eliminate slavery with the only power that he had, which was a military power as an executive order, if you will, uh, mm. as commander in chief. Right. I mean, the other thing that's used against Lincoln is this habeas corpus thing, suspended habeas corpus, 
which was ultimately approved by Congress. But, but you know, there's a provision in the Constitution against, you know, to act against rebellion. <laughs> so yeah. it's no unconstitutional act to take uh, a uh, move to preserve the life of your troops, which is what he was doing, because uh, mm-hmm. he knew if he did not do that, uh, there was actually going to be a lot of destruction of the powers of the federal government. So, uh, yeah, Lincoln's gotten a bad rap from both sides. <laughs> He's gotten a bad rap from being an autocrat, which I absolutely, I, I think that's just it's just ignorance. I mean, if you read anything about a, a biography of Lincoln and his whole approach to life, uh, you see the opposite. And on the other side, you know, attacked by the fact that he went slow. And Frederick Douglass attacked him for going slow, too. You mm-hmm. know, uh, one of the, the first meeting that uh, Lincoln had with Douglass, Douglass just showed up because he was so ma- angry at Lincoln for not uh, for this discrepancy in pay of the uh, of the black soldiers and the white soldiers. And Lincoln yeah. said, "Well, gee, you know, I agree. That's that's bad, and I'll I'll work on it. But you you got to realize what I'm dealing with, right? Yeah. And at the end, uh. After his death, Douglas actually said, you know, he's a white man's president, but he didn't say but. But at a later point, he said, you can see that if he had taken more radical action at the beginning, he might have lost his people and we would have lost the whole thing. He had to go slow in order to move people, move the country with him. Uh, yeah, you, I, I can understand that. Basically, he didn't say he had to. He said, I can understand that he might have lost the whole show mm-hmm. if he had immediately gone with where his heart was. And he was totally convinced that Lincoln's heart was against slavery. I mean, his first action was back in 1837, when he was a state legislator. He wasn't a full legislature. But anyway, uh, but, th- you know, that's pre-Lincoln. Um, I mean, the pre- I'm dealing with pre-Lincoln. Uh, mm. And I think people have to realize in this book, um, I see the decisive point being the Jackson administration, uh, which is where uh, Jackson explicitly went to destroy the American system of economy. Um, And I mean, talk about Rothschild. I mean, he had Belmont as one of his, and Rothschild as leading advisors in his administration, if you want to get it exact. Right, August Belmont was a leading Rothschild banker. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, and no. Bel- Belmont yeah. founded the Democratic Party in order in order to elect Jackson mm. in order to destroy the American system as it was as John Quincy Adams and Clay and 
uh, Matthew Carey and so forth were attempting to revive it. After a crucial 20 years of Jeffersonian sabotage of Hamilton economics. I mean, that is, people have to begin to think about economics in relation to political positions or whatever. I mean, yeah. because it's it totally creates the environment in which people make moral decisions or or immoral decisions. I mean, people ha have to decide, you know, and mm. the as opposed to just making it a personal choice, you've got to make a policy decision that your economy is going to move away from that kind of dependence on the degradation of, of human beings. And that decision was what Hamilton was attempting to do with limited success because it was, you know, we were still bringing ourselves out of total bankruptcy, right? Right. Um, but, uh, but sowing the seeds for it, establishing the framework for it, um, and the first thing that uh, there are two major things that are indicative that Jefferson did when he first came in. First thing he did is he cut off Haiti. Uh, he reversed the policy of the Federalist governments to provide support for the Toussaint Louverture's uh, rebellion against the French and the British and everybody else who was involved in trying to keep them down. Um, and secondly, he ordered Gallatin to destroy the Bank of the United States. You know, you know, investigate it. You've got to find the corruption. You've got to find Gallatin. It was kind of like yes. Yeah, it was, was kind of like Gallatin lawfare. Came. We've seen we we we've, we've seen this all all for people confused about how this. Uh, weaponization of of law works. Just look at what's happening across the United States. Look at what's happened in so many nations. It, it's it's lawfare, right? You 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 say, oh, somebody is corrupt. You you make sure that nobody looks at Hunter Biden and the Biden clan, and you only focus on what is politically expedient, even if you have to make things up and promote it to get an, a, a political effect. So this is not a new innovation that people could should be confused about. This has been done for a long time. And so what you're saying about Gallatin being deployed to actually carry out this type of thing on behalf of the slave power. That's very interesting. No, that's yeah. very interesting. So he says, you know, and, but, you know, to his credit and, you know, uh, Gallatin says, I can't find anything. Right? Interesting. But uh, the, the subtotal, the subtext, however, is, but we can use this bank for our own purposes, <laughs> which was to begin to pay off the debt uh, and, to and not invest in what was required to build the, the country, not to invest in the uh, infrastructure, uh, let them kill the whole order of the Navy, you know, uh, mm. expansion of the Navy, which had an immediate effects. I mean, we couldn't even deal with the pirates in, uh, in uh, North Africa. And, right. you know, speaking of conspiracies, the uh, I mean, there are many people who felt those pirates were deliberately deployed by the British Empire, right, in order yes. to try to destroy American shipping.
Yes, uh, absolutely. So we couldn't deal with that much less in the War of eighteen twelve. You know, yeah. where you know where you know it would take. We had no roads, right? You would say, "Well, we need these troops over here to deal with the British." Well, you know, how many months is it going to take to walk there? You know, it's right. Gonna, it, it's just a disastrous. And uh, so the, that's the way that the uh, uh, Gallatin used the uh, Bank of the United States. So he was convinced it was useful, right? Um, but not for the same purposes that Hamilton actually established it. And then uh, the, uh, but Jackson was set well, hold up. on, before you, before, oh yeah, before you, you finish that thought, because I really want to get into Jackson. That's such a big one. Um, let's right. take a little shifting of gears, go to commercial break, and then we're going to come right back to connecting the dots on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. In a shocking development that surprised no one, Hunter Biden failed to show up for his congressional deposition today. Moreover, California Representative Eric Swalliswell aided and abetted Hunter thumbing his nose at the Congress by working with Hunter's attorney so Hunter could avoid testifying. Will Hunter be held in contempt of Congress? Well, if so, so what? So was Eric Holder, nothing was done. But you see, when Democrats are in charge and they hold somebody in contempt of Congress, well, their door gets busted down, they get taken out at 5 a.m. with CNN there to broadcast the whole proceedings, the way Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, and Alex Jones were treated. Will Hunter be treated the same way? <laughs> you funny man. Of course he won't. But if there's any justice in the world, Santa won't be bringing Hunter another laptop this Christmas. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. What do I love about riding? It's the thrill. The excitement. Riding gives me a sense of freedom. I feel so connected to the road. Riding is like therapy to me. It makes me feel alive. Love riding? Back off. Perception versus the truth. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Aaron on today's News Talk TNT Radio. All right, welcome back to Connecting the Dots. We have been going through a rip-roaring tour of history, and I think one of the most important ways we could, with an appreciation for the role, the active agency of oligarchism, specifically uh, centered as it as it was then and still is in many ways today in the British Empire, the city of London, um, and the international web of fifth columnists embedded in many countries, of which the U.S. was never an exception. Um, the story of Hamilton has been turned inside out. What was America's fight to create a national bank, have economic sovereignty, standards on its own two feet, and abolish slavery to become a nation based upon creativity, production, instead of simply extraction of wealth from human or human labor or other. Um, the story that the that painted Hamilton as a Rothschild stooge that I was given, that so many people have been given for generations, often involves as part of its foundation doctrine or foundational myth, the story that, or the heroic story of Andrew Jackson as the great man alone who beat the bank, who paid the debt, 
who was the great hero we should aspire to revive today. Now, you've already said a few things about the actual hand of the Rothschilds of the city of London and America um, and the, the growth of the slave power by this said force. What, 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 what is Jackson really? What was, is, if he wasn't this hero, what was he? What did he do? <laughs> well, he was a war hero, right? And that made mm -hmm. him extremely useful to those who wanted to uh, shift the power uh, and policy of the United States away from uh, the Hamiltonian economics, which was critical. I mean, there was a massive nationalist movement here. You've had Tony Chaikin probably on this show. You know, really, the he's the champion of American century, uh, you know, 19th century nationalism in the United States, and has has done it very well. But the uh, so what they came up with, uh, Jackson was the popular figure behind whom they felt they could pull together the forces to do that. And those forces were centered in the New York City Financial District and in what's called the Richmond Junto, which was the political power in Virginia of the leading apologists and promoters of, slave, of the slave economy. So that was the combination. They made a deal. As soon as John Quincy Adams was elected, they said, let's get going. They started going. Uh, they began a press campaign, massive press campaign. Um, and the uh, then they uh, succeeded in getting Jackson elected in 1828. Jackson did not campaign against the bank. In fact, uh, he campaigned for tariffs in Pennsylvania because he knew that's the only way he could win in Pennsylvania. But when he got into office, you know, he began to move in the direction where he was told to go. He was to be anti-tariff. He was to be anti-bank, uh, saying that it was the uh, only the instrument of rich people, um, which is not true. Um, I have in the book, uh, you know, evidence that he was, uh, that the ownership of the bank was actually very much more broadly distributed than that. Uh, and he was against the federal government building up national infrastructure, which for a, a military guy would seem a little odd, right? That he wouldn't want to have that kind of expenditure. But, uh, but that was his view. And uh, he basically riled up the crowds. Now, the, the standard story is that he succeeded in getting the farmers and the little people from all around the country uh, to support him against the bank. They supported him. They supported him as a, a national military figure. But the people who really demanded that the bank be eliminated were the Wall Street people. Uh, and if there's an authoritative book by a guy named uh, Bray Hammond, H-A-M-M-O-N-D, uh, who says, who documents that, that it was not an insurgent movement of farmers who felt they were hurt by mm. the fact that you had the National Bank 
coordinating among the state banks. And they were coordinating. They weren't eliminating the state banks. It wasn't like today where they gobble up every state bank and you don't, don't have a local bank. It would, They were coordinating so that there wouldn't be uh, spe- uh, speculation uh, in a... Uh, in a destructive way, uh, that they were sound, right? Mm. And you could trust them. Uh, whereas without that kind of coordinating role, that was not the case. So uh, the fact is that uh, it was the banks in New York, closely tied to the banks in London, that really didn't want to have the continuation of the second national bank. You can, mm. um, there's lots more that could be investigated about the, that relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and I don't say I go into it in a whole lot of depth, but the fact is that they were the beneficiaries. The power of Wall Street grew after the Jackson administration eliminated the second bank of the United States. And people all over the country, uh, small businessmen, farmers, and so forth, who began to have difficulty getting credit, complained like mad that they didn't want. And there was a shrinkage of credit available as a result of not only the veto of the uh, charter of the Bank of the United States, but he also pulled the U.S. funds out of the Bank of the United States, which meant mm-hmm. they didn't have the resources to lend that they had before. And those resources were extremely important to someone who needed a loan to buy a new plow or needed a loan to you know expand their business. So, um, so it's just a it's a total fraud, mm-hmm. uh, you know to simply say that, uh, you know, it was a big bank. And now, of course, people legitimately, I suppose, confuse it with the, uh, as you mentioned before, the Federal Reserve today. Uh, But the Bank of the United States was not um, a wholly (laughs) bank-owned entity the way the uh, Federal Reserve is. It wasn't established for that reason. It was a $35 million bank, which the federal government owned a 20% of uh, and had regulatory power over for the purposes of supporting uh, the building of infrastructure and business in the United States. It was run like a commercial bank, and it was responsible for collaborating with local localities to build canals all over the country, very important for farmers and so forth. Lincoln uh, gave his one of his first nationally recognized speeches in 1840 in support of the National Bank. He was, was against the alternative to the National Bank, which was being put forward by Martin Van Buren. But, you know, what I really would like to uh, get across here is the this relationship between the fight against the oppression of human beings and the necessary economic policy. It's something that that has gradually been taken out of the political um, 
realm for many, many people. Uh, I read a, an article not too long ago uh, by someone who was talking about the shift in the United States in the in the 1920s. And their, argue, their argument was that it was in that period where you had the first real emergence of the consumer economy, where people stopped, the, where the running of the economy, as, as in principles of banking, principles of credit, what should be built and so forth, used to be a, a matter of passion politically mm-hmm. in in among the population mm. people began to shift their identity to be the people who you know what can i consume you know how much does it cost to consume this how much does it cost you know how many choices right. do i have this and as opposed to putting themselves in the minds of of running the economy which yeah. and and the crucial policy questions, which are generally invisible to people these days, uh, and partly, in a way, they're partly to blame because they don't apply themselves to learning those principles. Uh, right. So, I do want to make sure, Matt. I know you've been very kind to invite me on this show, but and you haven't done a. Uh, and you didn't give me any rules. So please go to Amazon and buy <laughs> Defeating Slavery um, or Hamilton versus Wall Street. That's quite as well. Uh, oh, yeah. Both, but, both of those books are essential reading for anybody who's a serious truth seeker trying to figure out how do I act as a citizen in today's world rather than a voyeur? Because we need citizens right now who are able to to really take responsibility. But that means also actions that will will be done animated by a deep, deep study and understanding of the topography that you're operating within, which your books do a, an amazing job at satisfying. And I think what you just said is is extremely subjectively important because at the end of the day, the mechanism of the Hamiltonian banking system that was revived by Lincoln with his greenbacks that was fought against by the the forces of the British Empire, um, as a mechanism, it is not the solution although it is a very invaluable precondition for the solution, because if you don't have a society of citizens who value learning, productivity, creating, and instead, if you have a a society of subjects who just see themselves as consumers who get their identity out of what do they consume, then it doesn't matter that you might have these instruments. They could still be used by, you know, to, 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 by by fascists who want to ultimately enslave you. It, it's it's a question of is the citizenry valuing those policies which will increase the abundance and the productive powers of labor or not? And it's really a subjective question, a cultural question at the end of the day. So I'm so happy that you brought that up. And that's why a lot of people can't yeah. they can't see what you said because they're you they're know. still part of this consumer culture. Right. Uh, or, you know, you also can call it a victim mentality if you're only seeing yourself as a victim and not as someone who participates mm-hmm. in the solution. I mean, that's one of the things that happened in, I don't know how much time we have, uh, that minutes. happened with the American Revolution. Uh, you know, a lot of people got stuck in the uh, opposition to the oppression without thinking of, well, what do we what do we build, right? Right. Uh, and Hamilton was into, you know, to save what we have, uh, to preserve our freedoms, we have to 
create something new. We have to create institutions. We have to think about this from the economic standpoint down to everything else. The other thing I wanted to say is this: the, the lead quote, uh, I guess you call it a sort of dedication in a book, you know, where you have a quote at the beginning. Um, I finally decided to take from Frederick Douglass, uh, which is, and this I think is one of the most popular uh, uh, posts on my blog, um, maybe because of the title, but it's knowledge unfits a man to be a slave. And mm. that is something he recognized very early when he learned to read, right? Um, and he reflected on that in the, I don't know which of the autobiographies, but it's there. Um, and that goes for not just people in chattel slavery in the 19th century, it goes for in the what might, people might think of as the metaphorical sense, but it's the reality uh, uh, for us today. And you've got to have that commitment to knowledge and to expanding your knowledge, uh, not just for yourself, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. but for the sake of the society and your posterity. Mm -hmm. And under under formed knowledge can also make man a slave too, because when you give the appearance of knowledge, some people, they, they get satisfied too quickly that yeah, they yeah, have yeah. knowledge mm -hmm. and they don't properly explore the terrain that is explorable in front of them if they so chose. Uh, that also uh, will often create even more damage, as Socrates said, you know, I, I don't know anything, but at least I'm in a better place because the people who are trying to kill me, <laughs> who are running the <laughs> politics of my society, they they don't know what they don't know. At least I'm right. self-aware. And so that practice yeah. of self-examining your assumptions always and and looking at uncomfortable evidence that might put into question some of our core assumptions is an right. invaluable precondition as well for true knowledge to form as of this recip reciprocal inner inner investigation and outer investigation back and forth at the same time. And if we get in mm -hmm. the habit of doing that, it's much more satisfying because you can really say you own knowledge rather than just... I uh, holding on to something you feel convinced about, but may or may not be true. Very, very right. different thing. And it's more of a power you can wield in battle, in a debate, but also in policy when you get up and stand up in a town a town hall meeting or you run for office or do whatever you need in a, in, in a school meeting. You can now speak with the, the authority of something more universal than simply, I hope I'm right or I feel really strongly about this, but <laughs> but maybe I'm not right. So, Nancy, you, you've provided so many resources over over your career, uh, going back to the 70s and your research, as I mentioned, to your revolutionary book on the political economy. But the most recent book, Defeating Slavery, uh, has, is a must read. Hamilton versus Wall Street also must read. Both of them are, are, are I guess, people should go to your website. Is that what you'd recommend? Okay. Yeah, uh, Amazon, you have to get Defeating Slavery on Amazon. The other one you can get on uh, I, my, on my publisher, iUniverse, and I get a little more money, but that's okay. Whatever's easiest. Whatever Once gets that, the, those ideas in your, in your mind, make it work. Go to AmericanSystemNow.com as well. Thank you so much, Nancy, for taking this time. We'll, uh, okay, we'll, thank we'll, you. Thank all you. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.